you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 94th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I have with us a personal friend and close colleague, Shruti Takwani. Shruti is a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in trauma, grief, and loss. She is also a certified coach and works as a school counselor at the International School of Curacao. Shruti is a basic instructor for William Glasser International and sits on the board of directors for that organization. She's also on the board of directors for the Massachusetts Sibling Support Network and the Indian Merchants Association of the Netherlands Antilles. I asked Shruti to talk with us about being the sibling of someone with a disability and how that has impacted her life and the lives of other sibs. Welcome, Shruti, and thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this sensitive topic. Thank you for having me, Kim, and thank you for considering this a topic worthy discussion. I think it's so important. I think it's a topic that not many people give consideration to, and it affects a lot of people. So I'm happy that you're here to talk with us about it. At what point did you realize you are a minority in regards to being a sibling of someone with a disability? I was well into adulthood by the time I realized that I was a little different in that sense and my family was a little different. Growing up, I obviously realized that my sibling was different than my friend's siblings, but I never quite understood how different, how the lifestyle was different, how I was different and the impact that it had. I never saw it that I was a minority in that sense until probably my 30s when I realized, oh, wait a minute, everything from what TV show I watched growing up to having my bedroom door locked to having designated time for homework was so different than everyone around me. So it took a while. It sounds like there were many differences that most people would never even think about. Absolutely. So Shruti, what was the toughest part about being a sibling of someone with a disability? Hands down the loneliness. It's just my sister and myself. I don't know if it would have been different if I had other siblings. And when I say loneliness, I mean two parts. One was not having a sibling to do sibling things with. When my sister was born, in my mind, I was promised this best friend for life. I was promised this person that I could play games with and play Barbies with and go to school with and even gang up on my parents with, even though that's not my personality. But there was a promise of a companion, of a friend, a live-in friend. And so there was the loneliness of that. But then there was that added layer of loneliness where nobody quite understands what you go through, not even your parents. As wonderful and as understanding my parents are, they are the parents of someone with a disability, not the sibling. As a parent, you have children knowing that you're going to love them and take care of them no matter what, or at least that's the hope. As a sibling, you don't make that promise. First of all, you don't choose to be a sibling. 
So when it happens, you have this expectation in your head of how it's going to go. And not only did I not get that, it was the opposite because there were these other burdens put on me as well of taking care of her. Just, I was happy to do, I'm, I'm still happy to do it. But the emotional toll is so much that you don't quite realize it until, again, I didn't realize it until adulthood. So very lonely is what I would say. So from what you've said, I understand you were the oldest. And how old were you when your sister was born? Not quite four. I was three and 10 months. Okay. So not at an age when understanding is very easy for you at that age. I'm curious what kind of disabilities your sister has that make it so lonely for you. It's not like she sits in a wheelchair, but in every other way, she's normal. Can you tell us about what's going on with your sister? Sure. Sure. So she was born with cerebral palsy and that wasn't diagnosed until she was almost two years old because she had delayed milestones. I know now as an adult and in the field that I'm in, I know there's more stuff going on, but it's undiagnosed because there's no real way to test her. I am convinced there's some ADD in there, maybe even some autism in there, but there's no way to test it. So we have kind of left it as cerebral palsy. She's nonverbal. She is unable to care for herself or be by herself. So she takes 24-hour care. She requires 24-hour care. She can eat by herself and drink by herself, but she can't moderate how much she eats or anything like that. So she, yeah, cerebral palsy is where it's at. But as you know, it's such a spectrum of ability when it comes to CP. So she's probably on the moderate to severe end of it. Okay. That sounds exhausting to think about the care that's involved. It is. Wow. Even when you love someone, it still takes a physical toll. And is self-care something important to you? Do you make sure that you attend to that? Funnily enough, in my field, self-care was something that was brought up in undergrad, in grad school, in every at every conference I attend, self-care is brought up and is a session. And I preach it a lot. And I never quite got it. Again, maybe I'm a late bloomer in this sense. I'm 38 years old. I didn't quite understand the concept of it until about five years ago. Because I truly believe that we call ourselves SIBs. A bunch of us in the United States come together, people who have siblings with disabilities. We call ourselves SIBs. I really believe that SIBs don't know what that means. We are so used to putting our siblings in front of us. It's just unnatural to take care of ourselves if it means sacrificing something for our siblings. It almost seems that by necessity, your sibling needs to come first. It's like, was it Hillary Clinton who said it takes a village to raise a child? But I'm imagining it takes more than a village to raise someone like your sister. Absolutely. It absolutely does. What do you wish other people knew? So much. I wish they understood or attempted to understand what it's like just to live in our house for 24 hours. As much as they see us in public, my family has always been one to take my sister everywhere. 
whether it's to restaurants or bowling or to the movies or even traveling. My sister has been to many, many countries. It was easier earlier when my parents were younger and they were able to carry her places and maneuver her wheelchair around. It's a lot harder now. I think the public sees us caring for her out in in public. Everyone sees us caring for her out in public. And we've been told we make it look easy. And it's true. It's very easy to love her. But I don't think they see the behind the scenes struggle that goes on. Getting her out of the house, getting her into the shower. Every time the nurse comes, it is a battle. My poor parents have to fight that twice a day, every time she showers. Yeah, here we are still on time. We're usually the first ones anywhere. I think the public doesn't, even my closest friends, they don't realize the struggle behind the scenes. They only see the outcome of it. So I wish there would be an attempt to understand, one. Two, I do realize that while we have a lot of support now, growing up, we did not have a lot of support. We did not have anyone volunteering to watch me while my parents took my sister to doctor's appointments or to take me on a movie date, like aunts and uncles, anything like that. We didn't have that. So again, going back to the loneliness, it was very lonely. And then the other thing I wish they knew was that I grew up very quickly because even as an eight-year-old, when all my friends were going to a birthday party, let's say it was a pool party, there would be times where I either didn't go or I went and I wouldn't swim or I would come back early because something was going on with my sister. Either we didn't want her to see me in a bathing suit or she would feel left out. She would feel like she wasn't a part of things because she wasn't invited to the birthday parties that my friends and I were invited to. Just to know that I have to be different sometimes in order to be a good sister to her. It's not always about what I want to do, but sometimes it's about what I feel I need to do. Making those sacrifices, like I would love to go out and get dinner with my friends. However, my parents haven't had a break in six months, especially recently with lockdown. And so I'm choosing to stay home with her while they go out and get a break. Even at this age, of course, now my friends are a lot more understanding, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. What would you like other SIBs to know that may not be as far along in their journey as you are? I don't want them to feel any shame or guilt in talking about it or in asking for help. I did not start talking about it until 2019, probably was the first time I really started talking about it. And the only reason I started was because about 10 years ago, I went online in search of other SIBs because I wanted support. I wanted to know what it was like for other SIBs out there because my parents and I were talking about our wills. I've had a will ever since I turned 21 years old because I was so afraid of what would happen to my sister if my parents and I were in a car crash and something happened to us. I've always been careful about thinking about our future and her future without us. And I was in search of other sibs and I could not find what I was looking for when I looked 10 years ago. And then a few years ago, I searched again. I went on Google and I searched, I think I searched sibling of special needs 
person or something like that. And I found that there was this organization called the Sibling Leadership Network. At first glance, I thought, well, that doesn't say special needs. It turned out that, yes, the organization did serve siblings of people with disabilities. They were having a conference that year. I went to the conference. I presented at the conference. It was amazing because even before that conference, I do a lot of speaking, presenting, teaching. I'm not afraid of public speaking. I present at a lot of conferences. I always have. But that morning, I woke up waiting to present at this conference, and I was nervous, and I was a little anxious. And I realized it was because this topic was so close to my heart, and it touched a different layer of vulnerability. I never had talked about it before, not because I didn't want to, but because I didn't think anyone would want to listen. I remember the first time I said the words, I am a sib." It was so emotional because it was like I was discovering a new part of me that I didn't even know existed. That was pretty powerful. And ever since that day, I have been invited to speak to SIBs at different organizations in different states. And I have been invited to be a part of different groups in terms of coaching, in terms of just staying different resources for SIBs and families of special needs. That was pretty powerful. I noticed that in your conversation, you have talked about disabilities and you also talked about special needs. Is there a preference? Does it matter? What do you think about the terminology? Because it seems terminology is constantly changing and very sensitive. So I want to make sure that our audience has a sense of that. I appreciate you asking that. I always used to say my sister has special needs. When I attended this conference in 2019, I know that there was this conscious effort to call it a disability and not special needs. Personally, I don't have a preference. It doesn't matter to me. As long as people have the intent to be respectful, to me, it doesn't matter. I usually ask what people prefer. I work at a school where in our policies, when we're talking about students who need any sort of accommodation, we do call it special needs, but we're not dealing with the special needs like my sister. We're dealing with learning disabilities and things like that. I know the terminology is constantly changing, and even I do my best just not to be offensive and to just ask at every step of the way, but I don't have a personal preference. Okay. Thank you for that. If you could grow up all over again, would you do anything differently? I would do so much differently. If it was available to me, I would start therapy from the time I could talk, probably ever since my sister was born. I would ask for family therapy. I would ask my parents to be in some sort of therapy only because the burden of the emotions is so much and is so heavy and there's no need for us to carry this by ourselves. It's so helpful to say things out loud and to even compare sometimes, you know, hey, what's it like at your house? And what's it like at your house? Does every household have doors at every room with locks where people need to lock behind themselves so people don't go in and mess things up? 
I remember the day I realized that not every household has to have people sitting at the table before dinner is on the table. Because in my house, if you set the table and there's food on the table, my sister will eat it all by the time dinner is served and everyone shows up for dinner. Something like that. Like I didn't realize that doesn't happen at every household. If I needed to grow up all over again, I would be asking for help a lot sooner and asking for help processing things a lot sooner and working on letting go of the guilt a lot sooner as well. What is the guilt about? Is it about you being the so-called normal one or is it about not doing enough? What is the guilt about? The guilt is about being the quote-unquote normal one. And as you know, I started writing a book called The Normal Child, and I haven't worked on it in a while. Yeah, it is about being the normal one and this almost the survivor's guilt that I've been given this able body and these opportunities, and my sister hasn't, so I'd better make the best of it and really be great since I was the one given these chances. So it puts even more pressure on you to be able to perform not only for yourself, but for her as well. Absolutely. And there's always, always guilt, at least for me, about not doing enough. There's guilt every time I go out to dinner and she looks at me while I'm getting ready. Or every time I travel, I love traveling. I love airplanes. I love everything about it. But every time I leave the house to go to the airport, I feel very guilty because she's not going anywhere. And I am. It's a lot to carry. It is. It is a lot. So what is your message to our audience members that you'd want them to know about siblings of people with a disability? How can they help? What do you appreciate from them? What do you want them to understand? I want them to understand that Nine out of 10 times, siblings of people with disabilities have a very hard time saying no, that more likely than not, they will take on more than they can chew because we're helpers, we're caretakers, we want to fix the world, we want to make it a better place, we want to make it kinder, we want to make it more comfortable, and that means putting ourselves last a lot of times. And I also want them to know that there's always more going on. There's always more beneath the surface and to look for that and to attempt to ask for that. And to offer to help when possible. That's a bonus. That would be great. You mentioned that you're writing a book. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. The book is about growing up with a sibling who has a disability. And a lot of it is storytelling, things that I've remembered, things that happened as a child that I never quite processed because I didn't think there was anything to process. For example, it was a few weeks ago, actually, I was in my best friend's living room. My best friend lives in Boston and he has an almost two-year-old now. And we were talking about TV shows like Sesame Street. And I said, oh, I never watched that as a kid. And he said, oh, how come? Is it because you grew up in Curacao and they never had it? And I said, no, honestly, I didn't get to watch regular TV shows as a kid because we always put in what would keep my sister distracted and happy so she would calm down. 
So I never got a chance to watch Sesame Street or anything like that that was age appropriate because the TV automatically was designated to her. I didn't make that realization until three weeks ago. Things like that, that I'm just discovering, not only about myself, but also about the world and how I perceive the world with a different lens. All that stuff is in the book and how I feel about it, how it's changed me, how I am in relationships, how much of myself I give, why I give so much. There's this underlying need to overcompensate for everything. It's a lot of emotion, but the purpose of it is for other people to realize that once again, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. And for other sibs to not be so lonely, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that came to my mind was most teenagers go through a period where they give their parents some grief little rebellious. And I can speak for myself. I was a lot rebellious. Is that a developmental stage that you are not afforded because of your being the sibling of a person with a disability? Personally, I was never rebellious. No. Part of it was the understanding of my parents. I have very understanding parents who, even though we grew up on a small island in the Indian community, it was a very small one and everyone knew everyone else's business. It was like living in a fishbowl. My parents gave me a lot of leeway. I didn't have any curfews or anything like that, partly because of their personalities, partly because they, yes, were very busy trying to tend to my sister and partly because I never did anything to warrant a curfew or grounding or anything like that. So I don't know what came first. I don't know whether it was that I was a child who didn't need those boundaries and so I didn't have them or it was because they gave it to me so freely that I didn't need them. I don't know what came first, but no, I was not afforded a rebellious stage at all. Well, look out. You might have a crazy midlife crisis and be like super oppositional. Who knows? I want to give you the opportunity if there's anything else I haven't asked you about, anything else you'd like to say. I'm in touch with a lot of SIBs now, thanks to a bunch of programs that I am a part of in the last couple of years. And I have done a lot of soul searching in the last couple of years because of that. And I know there's a lot of different opinions, even from SIBs. There's some that go one way where they say, we don't want anything to do with our sibling. We're done. We grew up with them. We've given enough. We're done with that. And then there's sits on the other side that say, yep, I want my sibling to live with me. It doesn't matter if I have my own family, they will live with me until the day they die. What I would like for the people listening to this podcast is to approach sibs with kindness, regardless of what their choices may be, because they're doing what they find is best for themselves. We're put through the ringer as sibs, and there are times where we don't know who we are because our sibling's identity has come before us so much. There are times we struggle, there are times we make mistakes, just like everyone else. And to just not be judgmental, if it sounds like, how could you do that? How could you leave your own sister in a wheelchair? I would just ask that you approach it with kindness because everyone's really dealing with a battle that we know very, very little about. There seems like there's a lot of guilt to go around. 
I imagine your parents have their share and you as the SIB also have yours. So would you have a message at all for the parents of children with disabilities if they're listening to this and maybe feel guilty for not attending to the quote, normal children in their family? Funny that you brought that up. In my intro, you mentioned that I am on the board of the Massachusetts Sibling Support Network. That is an organization that serves siblings of people with disabilities. One of the things that we do is we give a presentation called No Sibling Left Behind. It is geared to parents, and the purpose of it is to educate parents on what the quote-unquote normal child might be going through. And I can tell you that most of the presentations I've done have been virtual, but one that I did in December 2019, right before the pandemic hit, the parents were so emotional because of guilt. They, they were hearing us talk and they were feeling so guilty. They were so emotional. We actually stopped the presentation for a couple of minutes so they could gather themselves and then we continued. My message would be, you're trying to figure it out just like the rest of us. There is no guidebook on this. There's no guidebook on parenting, let alone parenting someone with a disability. And of course, there are a lot of guides. There's a lot of advice, but there's no handbook on parenting. Everyone's trying to figure it out as they go. Be kind to yourself. And as for the guilt, you didn't know what you didn't know, but it's never too late. It's never too late to talk to your kid about it, your child about it. It's never too late to address it and to process it. It would be appreciated, at least from where I'm sitting. It doesn't matter how old they are, because that's part of the being seen, being heard, being listened to, being validated. Thank you for that. That was great. If people listening would like to reach out to you, is there a way for them to get a hold of you? Yes, absolutely. I have email, Facebook, Twitter, all that other good stuff. The easiest way is probably through email, shruditakwani at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Shruti, for spending this time with us and helping us talk about a topic that I bet most people have not really thought about. Thank you for having me. It is so important that people hear this message. And I was so touched that you thought of me. So thank you for that. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be talking with Valerie Wise, a social worker who will talk to us about mental illness and its intersectionality with the correctional system. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, choices equal life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.